Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Our call to worship this morning is adapted from the words of the Reverend Kathleen McTeague. You who are brokenhearted, who woke today with the winds of despair whistling in your mind, come in. You who are brave but wounded, hurting with every move forward, come in. You who are fearful, who live with the shadows hovering over your shoulders, come in. This place is sanctuary, and it is for you. You who are filled with happiness, whose abundance overflows, come in. You who move through your world with lightness and grace, who awoke this morning with strength and hope, you who have everything to give, come in. This place is your calling, a riverbank to channel the sweet waters of your life, a place where you are called by the world's need. Here we offer in love, here we receive in gratitude. Here we make a sacred community from the great gifts of breath, attention, and purpose. Come, let us worship together. The setting is 1890 in Germany. Teenagers are slowly waking up to their emerging desires questions, fears, and insecurities. And the adults in their lives, both teachers and parents, refuse to answer these questions and realities head on. Moritz is afraid of his body's changes and confused about why his mind keeps fixating on things that he can't understand. Melchior is more aware of his desires, but he has no way of understanding how to handle them. Vendla is developing quickly and has many questions, but her mother refuses to explain to her how babies are actually made. Then there is Ernst, who begins to realize that he likes boys, and Hanschen, who is beginning to realize that he likes boys and girls. And we meet Ilsa, who is being abused by her father and hated by her mother. The play is called Spring Awakening, and it was written in 1891 by Frank Vedekind. These teenage protagonists are all learning about the complexity of desire, both their own desire and about being the object of someone else's desire. They are portrayed as persistently curious adolescents who are knocking on the door of adulthood. But unfortunately for them, the adults aren't opening or even answering the door. The adults in the play fail to acknowledge the changing reality of their adolescent children. They refuse to educate their children about how to encounter this whole new world of emerging desire. And the young characters in the play, left to their own devices, end up experiencing suicide, rape, and unintended pregnancy. In essence, the youth have a watermelon in their hand, and they understand that its sweetness is beckoning them to respond. 
that without proper information or instruction, they hold the heavy fruit, ashamed at the tug of desire they are experiencing. Spring Awakening is a heavy play, ripe with emotion, devastation, tragedy, and desire. It tolls the bell for comprehensive education that does not shy away from adult subjects. And it recognizes that adolescents are adults becoming adults. Unsurprisingly, the powers that be initially censored it for its controversial subject matter and provocative message. Because we all know that an honest and bold message about empowered and educated sexuality will always threaten to rip through the secretive curtains of power. As a religious community, we are bound together as fellow meeting makers, as journeyers on this thing called life. We are a flock migrating together, staying separate enough not to crowd each other and aligned enough to maintain a shared direction. And one of our primary tasks of meaning making lies in learning how to healthfully respond to our desires. This church community can be the place where we challenge ourselves to ask, do my desires honor the inherent worth and dignity of all people? And this church community can also be a place where we celebrate a beautiful diversity of healthy sexual expression and sexual relationships, knowing that intimacy with another person requires consent and communication. We must be able to know and express our own desires as well as hear and honor the desires of another. This is part of the work of a religious community. And another part of the work is responding to the ways that our society, and more specifically individuals in our society, are failing to honor the worth and dignity of those around them. We are called to respond to the injustice of unhealthy and dysfunctional sexuality, including, but not limited to, the sickness of toxic masculinity. As a cisgender man, I have been feeling the urgency to respond to the many instances of toxic masculinity that I see all around me. I've been contemplating how to respond to the Me Too movement, to the examples of rape culture that I witness, and to the far too common occurrence of rich white rapists who avoid substantial jail sentences because of their privilege. In this process of contemplation, I'm reminded that one of the best ways to fight toxic masculinity is to name it as the dysfunction that it is, and to celebrate healthy masculinity to encourage and educate people about healthy sexuality. Our association of UU congregations has co-created, along with the UCC, an excellent sex ed curriculum that is holistic, comprehensive, and age-appropriate, dealing with all components of relationship and intimacy. It is called OWL, which stands for Our Whole Lives, and there are curricula for K through 6, 7 through 12, and adults. This curriculum gives me hope but the thing that always gives me pause is that many congregations struggle to find people willing to teach it. I get the sense that we, as a people, want our children to be educated about sexuality, but we don't always be, want to be the ones to do it. I hear, it, I hear the laughter. <laughs> I hope that this congregation bucks that trend. The winds of time and the currents of change have come, and we must respond.
Since today's sermon is about healthy sexuality, and healthy sexuality involves consent and communication, we need to start right away with a little talk about consent. Maybe some of you have educated yourself about the importance of consent. If not, there's a wonderful video online about consent that utilizes tea as a metaphor for intimacy. I recommend it heartily. The importance of consent cannot be understated, and that is why we need to talk about a song from 1944, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Yep. This song could be a useful tool to look at the implicit and coded systems that we employ in our intimate relationships, in our courting, in our flirtations, and in our dating world. Plus, we might be able to learn a thing or two about the time in which it was written. For those of you who don't know, don't worry, I won't sing it, <laughs> but I will try to summarize it. Written by Frank Lesser, the song is a duet between a man and a woman with regularly alternating lines. Presumably, at the end of a date, it is late, and the woman expresses her desire to leave multiple times and in multiple ways. The man regularly counters her desire to leave, often repeating the line, but baby, it's cold outside. There is, of course, nuance to the song, and there are multiple interpretations, but the general gist is that on the surface, the man and the woman want different and conflicting things, and the desires that are being communicated are not being fully honored. For many women at that time, saying yes to their own sexual desires or to the sexual advances of a potential partner was either less allowed or more taboo than saying no. Because of that reality, the word no had to mean both no and yes. In other words, if the woman felt socially pressured to say no, regardless of how she felt, it was the partner's duty to find out if her no actually meant no, or if her no meant yes. It is in this context that we see the man in this song trying to decipher the meaning. When the woman says, my answer is no. He persistently discourages her from leaving for the night by reiterating how cold it is outside, hence implying how warm it would be to stay there with him. The composer of the song initially wrote it to be sung by him and his wife at dinner parties when it was time for people to go home. Yeah. It was billed as an amusing diversion and lighthearted fun. And yet, the original score called the two roles Mouse and Wolf. There's a lot happening in this song. In the lyrics, behind the lyrics, we see her providing many reasons for her no, many of which are societal. For instance, she wonders aloud what the neighbors would think. She is pointing to societal expectations to act a certain way and alluding to the consequences that she would face if she stayed with him. I'm aware that this awareness of society's expectation weighs more heavily on her since she would take the brunt of the blame and the shame societally. And still, there's ambiguity about her position. It seems to me that she herself is torn in a few directions. At some point, she concedes to half a drink more. And at that point, we could conjecture either that she really does want to stay a little while longer, or that she is doing what she knows he wants her to do. There are ample ways to interpret this song. And yet, I refuse to ignore the problematic communication that it presents 
and the important power differential that it ignores. We see that this power differential is not just a product of its time or in the past. When we look at our news this year, for instance, I read that Harvey Weinstein's attorney argued that Weinstein wasn't the one that originated the casting couch, shockingly implying something close to boys will be boys, or that's just the way it's always been in Hollywood. And I'm not buying it. There's a very important power dynamic at play in the Weinstein case that cannot be ignored. And to interpret this song without analyzing its dynamics as well would be foolish. It is important to note that it is the woman wondering what the neighbors would think because she would pay the higher price. Also of note in this song, when he thinks that she will succeed in rebuffing his advances, the man asks the questions, what's the sense in hurting my pride? And how can you do this thing to me? The sense of entitlement and ego wrapped up in those two lines is too jarring to miss. And they beg the question, what does she owe him? We are living in an era of emergence. A lot has changed in 75 years. And I will not pretend that the progress we have made is enough. Women are still being paid less than men. Marginalized people across the spectrum are still experiencing oppression. And more than before, people who are marginalized are boldly and loudly naming who they are, speaking their truth, and demanding to be heard and seen. People of dominant or privileged identities are invited to listen, but there are so many ways that we still overlook the voices of the marginalized. We are living in a time, more so than 75 years ago, where a woman can boldly and publicly say yes to her own sexual desires and her sexual power. And this now means that consent is more important than ever. No doesn't mean both no and yes. No simply means no. People of all types are saying no and meaning no. And yet, there are numerous ways, not just regarding sex or intimacy, that we still don't respect consent. We need to challenge the prevalent societal norm to accept or look the other way when powerful people wield their power over others, causing someone else to lose their sense of agency. What might it look like to celebrate a modernized version of our dating and courting system that honors consent and seeks to utilize clear and direct communication? When I sought to answer that question, I found a revamped version of Baby It's Cold Outside, written by local musicians Lydia Liza and Josiah Lemansky two years ago. It is a playful yet bold statement about the importance of consent and clear communication, even amidst competing desires. I really can't stay. Baby, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I've got to go away. Baby, I'm cool with that. This evening has been so very nice. I'm glad you had a real good time. <laughs> Up to this point, we see that when she names her desire to go, he responds with acceptance. I ought to say no, no, no. You reserve the right to say no. <laughs> At least I'm going to say that I tried. You reserve the right to say no. Not once, but twice, he affirms the importance of consent and her right to say no. 
This may seem small or frivolous, but it also has profound and serious implications. In the past, and even somewhat still today, there has been an assumption that after a certain number of dates have transpired, especially if one person has paid for the dates, that something is owed to that person. But a healthy expression of dating, sex, and intimacy cannot be boiled down to economic or transactional exchanges. For a gift to be given, it must be given freely without attachment to reciprocation. But some people ignore this reality and revert to a mindset of obligation and entitlement. I just found out about a movement last month called the incel movement, a movement of involuntarily celibate people. Involuntarily celibate got shortened to incel. It started out as an online forum of support for single people who were unable to find sexual and romantic partners. It was basically a lonely hearts club. The original founder was a queer woman from Canada, and as the moderator of the forum, she kept encountering lonely and sad men who expressed their hurt by spewing hatred and anger towards women, a move that is hardly original, but is wildly dangerous. At some point, the founder of the forum had been in a relationship for a while, and she was no longer interested in moderating the forum. Plus, the movement was really taking off, and there was no longer just one forum. Since that time, as you can imagine, many of the groups formed initially for solidarity and support deteriorated into echo chambers of misogyny and anger towards women. A whole coded language got created to communicate among this incel community. There was an alpha class of people called Stacys and Chads who were attractive and who easily found love, sex, and intimacy. There was a beta class of people called normies sort for normals, who were less conventionally attractive than the Stacys and the Chads, but who somehow still found love and intimacy despite their unconventional looks. And then there were the incels who placed themselves in the Omega class. They were the very bottom of the caste system. And this placement both confirmed and created a deep sense of anger and grief. I found this group because one incel member just went on a killing spree in Toronto where he drove his van on the sidewalk, killing 10 and injuring 15 others. He had left a Facebook post earlier that day, referencing his status as an incel and lauding the actions of his hero, a fellow incel, who had killed six people on a shooting spree in California back in 2014. Whew, right? These instances are some of the most egregious examples of toxic masculinity and misogyny, and in them, we see what happens when men fail to do the emotional labor that is required to communicate their feelings. There's a real sense of loneliness, anger, pain, and an unmet desire for connection. But rather than seeking out a healthy way to express and communicate those feelings, these men chose to demean not just the worth and dignity of others, but their very lives. Violence, control, and manipulation are not healthy ways to interact and communicate with others, especially not in the context of sexuality and intimacy. We are living in a time of emergence, and what is emerging for some is our awareness that we are drowning in toxic masculinity. If I could 
speak for just one moment to the people in the room who identify as male. We must respond. Otherwise, there'll be even more disastrous real-life consequences, like the consequences faced by the characters in the play Spring Awakening, or like the real-life news events all around us. In 2006, over 100 years after it was written, Spring Awakening was adapted into a Tony Award-winning musical. The music that Franco has been playing this morning has been from that musical. Thank you for your amazing sight reading, by the way. <laughs> the subject matter of the musical still provoked some people and prompted calls for censorship. Many people were nervous about the adult nature of the content of this play about teenagers. It had a groundswell of vocal and passionate supporters, primarily young people, with whom this message resonated strongly. It is not surprising to me that this play caused such a stir. But the interesting thing that I want to point out is that sometimes we think that our teenage years are the only years that we can, that we can and should deeply investigate our desires or come to terms with our attractions and our need for intimacy. Handling our desires is not, is not just pivotal for teenagers. It is everyone's work to find and name and voice our desires in healthy, consensual ways. And it is holy work. As the changing years unfold, we are invited to see every day as an evolving and emerging reality. Go not abroad for happiness. Behold, it is a flower blooming at your door. It is possible that we might not crave watermelon in the winter the same way that we do in the summer. And just like our taste buds change throughout our lives, so do our desires and preferences for intimacy, sex, and connection. How are you adapting and responding to your changing desires? And how are you empowering those around you of all ages to do the same? Blessed be, and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.